Welcome to the fourth of our monthly conversations with Constantine, who is one of the most respected voices on YouTube about what is happening inside Russia. Konstantin Samalov is a well-known YouTuber whose channel Inside Russia comments insightfully on Russia's descent into authoritarianism over the last few years, but now, like many others, he's outside Russia with no idea of when he or his family can return. Welcome to Silicon Curtain. If you find this video interesting, please do share the link so you can discover the other fantastic speakers that we feature. Consider becoming a patron or buy me a coffee to help us maintain the quality and frequency of output of videos. But Constantine, I'm delighted to welcome you back. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It's fantastic to be back. Thanks for having me. Now we 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 debated about the frequency of of uh, you know whether we'd run out of things to talk about, but I don't think there's any um, you know there's no lack of things to address here. And we're going to start with two, I think, interesting topics. One is one we were sort of discussing just before we hit record, and that is the rather curious pronouncement by Alexander Dugin that he is going to stop referencing the infamous Z and V symbols, not because of their uh, you know intrinsic uh, sort of fascistic uh, sort of symbolism, but he says they're now associated, they're now tainted with the ideas of defeat and humiliation. Um, I mean, I don't know what you think of that. Uh, it does seem that Z bloggers are reacting to this. And of course, Alexander Dugin has a considerable amount of respect amongst the so-called turbo patriots and Z bloggers. Well, I wouldn't call that respect, but uh, influence, let's put it this way. And this is a new uh, development for me. Uh, I am surprised to actually shocked. And all I can say is, uh, well, good morning, Z Patriots. You know, smell the coffee. It's it's taken quite a long time, and I suspect they will find other ways to express, um, you know, the, the the aggression that underlies uh, much of the propaganda and Telegram channels um, that sort of focus on these themes. The other um, big question, and I think this is quite a difficult one, isn't it, because of let's say, the lack of, of maybe media observers and so on. But we have heard that Chinese goods are flooding into Russia to replace the Western goods, the Western brands that have been exiting. Um, do you have any idea of the scale of this? And have you heard anything about how these goods are being sort of, you know, what's people's view on this? Are they happy to have these substitutions or are people perhaps complaining about the changes or the quality of the goods there is a huge wave of goods from china they are replacing pretty much everything that was manufactured supplied in the west or at least manufactured in china by western companies according to the western standards just give you one example in the last 12 months uh 88 percent of cars sold in russia uh, have been chinese and right now, uh, in the last few months, uh, people started massively complaining about quality of the cars. Well, you know, the Chinese cars aren't Mercedes's and BMWs, you know. Uh, so everything else is being replaced. Yes, uh, there is no shortage of products or food in Russia at this point, but Yes, everything is getting replaced by the Chinese goods, um, you know, manufactured in China, according to the local Chinese quality standards. So um, the substitution is there. Quality, well, far from the best in the world. And this is a much bigger issue, isn't it? I mean, consumer goods, one thing, but when it comes to machine tools, when it comes to the equipment required to maintain service or even manufacture equipment, it's a much bigger issue, isn't it, if if those are of inferior quality? Huge, huge issue. Um, there are so many industries that relied on the Western technologies. And obviously, most, if not all, companies of foreign companies from the West have left Russia. 
And not only they have left, they've taken the technologies, they've taken spare parts, you know, they've stopped supplying um, tools, machines, and so forth. And um, the best Russians can do right now is to substitute with the Chinese. Well, first of all, the Chinese, they don't have some of the technologies at all. For example, oil drilling. China is not big at oil drilling. The best they can do is to buy uh, a machine, a product, and do re-engineering and, you know, manufacture their own cell. But the quality is, you know, it's it's very low, okay? And some, some of machines, some of the tools, they can't even re-engineer. So big problem. Nowhere is that more apparent than the airline industry. And we discussed this last time, but since then, we've seen extremely dramatic footage of emergency landing of planes. We've had stories of crucial parts failing on planes so they can't even take off. This is starting to become a, a massive issue, isn't it? It has. Well, Jonathan, it's taken uh, a few months. You see, when you have a car or a plane, doesn't matter, you know, it's... um sophisticated machine that if well maintained will last you a long time will operate according to uh how it's supposed to operate but once you stop servicing it it's not gonna fall apart or stop you know running stop flying the very next day it's gonna take some time for it to um you know for some parts to work out uh uh for some things need to be replaced. And I've heard different um, different times from six to 18 months. Well, this is about 18 months now. And we start seeing more and more accidents. So far, uh, it's the record year for the air uh, accidents, air airplane accidents, uh, both in the air and on the ground. I think so far there has been 23, okay? Um, and yes, you cannot replace Boeing or Airbus parts. Not even Chinese can do that. You can try to buy them and export to Russia um, in secret, okay? But it's really difficult with airline with airplane parts, okay? Because, uh, you know, it's not your typical car, Chinese or even German car. And uh, all the spare parts, they're numbered and they're traced and so forth, you know? So it's... Um, when I send my family to fly somewhere, um, I choose a foreign airline. I never choose Russian airline anymore. That that sounds like a, a safe option. And of course, the subcontractors as well, the subcontracting companies are now all local, whereas previously they may have been a mixture. They may have had trainers and support uh, from abroad. Um, they may have had joint ventures with foreign partners. Now it's purely local contractors, and I'm assuming that the quality of contracted services is going to go down in terms of quality as well. Well, I think it's safe to say that uh, it does go down because obviously you cannot replace um, the representatives from Boeing or Airbus, okay? Um, you're absolutely right. The local subcontractors, they can only do so much. One of the reasons that uh, Russia's economy hasn't fallen apart, the wheels haven't fully come off sooner, is apparently the sort of skill of Elvira Nabulina, the uh, central banker. I know people have put the words liberal and label her with that, uh, but certainly she does seem to be a skilled um, economist and banker. However, there have been some considerable political rumblings and people calling for her to be removed. Am I right in thinking that that could be a fairly catastrophic move for Putin's economy as it lurches back to more of a command economy? She perhaps is one of the only people who is is holding this uh, fragile show together. Uh, Jonathan, I have a little different opinion. I think Elvira Nabiulina or not, it will not happen. It will not help Putin's economy. Okay. Um, she has done, well, in my opinion, Elvira Nabiulina is one of the few professionals in current Russian government, you know, real professionals. 
she's done a brilliant job to balance Russian economy in the last 18 months. And uh, she's as much responsible for what the Russians have done to Ukraine and, and, and in Ukraine, though, you know, her heads are definitely in blood, but she she's a professional at what she does at banking. Those rumblings of discontent, they have been heard lately, especially um, since the exchange rate that ruble devalued in early August. Okay, but they're just populist outcries from Russian public figures, both propaganda and politicians. You see, in Russia, always, at any time, at any situation, uh, at any part of history, there are two questions that dominate the society. They are, who is guilty and what to do next? This is how Russian propaganda and politicians think and work. Now, let me give you an example. You know, Russian ruble is in free fall. It was 82. Now it's trading at 100 to American dollar. Russian currency is among top three worst performing currency in 2023 inflation starts galloping we're going to public you know we're going to publicly blame someone for that uh right who who would that be of course elvira nabiulina it's her fault don't mind russian economy turning into war economy don't mind russian economy losing its main bread makers, you know, and um, earning so much less and spending so much more. Don't mind millions of Russians who have fled the country. Don't don't mind Russian troops in Ukraine killing and getting killed. Don't mind, you know, all these things. Don't mind that the Russia is aggressor. Um, don't mind that the country is in chaos. It's all Nabiulina's fault. You know, it's not the decision of Putin to invade Ukraine. No, no, no. We've got to blame someone. And that someone, of course, is Elvira Nabiulina. Because if we don't put the blame on someone, if we don't call a name, Russian people would blame us. <laughs> and this is how it works in Russia. I mean, no more, no less. This is, and this is exactly why this is not Beulina's fault, not Putin's fault, okay? Who is guilty? Finger pointing, her. That's it. <laughs> but with her or without her, Russian economy is not doing well. She can slow down the demise, and she has been slowing it down, but this inevitable. And as you say, by slowing down that economic collapse, she is also prolonging the war, prolonging that moment when... Uh, the fight is no longer sustainable. So, as you say, one could make the case that she is culpable um, uh, for um, you know what's happening along with. She's with responsible. Yes, she's responsible. There's no question about that. And there's going to be a lot more for people to point their fingers at. There's going to be a lot more blame going around because the news that uh, comes through since the last time we spoke is also of fuel shortages of bans on export of fuel we're also hearing that in some agricultural regions um you know they've run out of diesel they can't bring the harvests in which is surely catastrophically not just economically but to actually do the most basic commitment a government needs to do and that's to feed its people um how did this arise and how is the government trying to deal with this latest crisis in the russian government way you know, as usual, <laughs> fuel shortages. Um, you know, that's something I haven't heard about in about 35 years. Last time I witnessed the fuel shortage was in 1989 in Crimea, in the USSR. My father was born and raised in Crimea um, in you know, so we used to vacate the vacation there every single year. And we usually stayed in a mountainous village some six kilometers away from uh, the seaside, from the beach. That's where my father was born and grew up. And, and uh, 
we usually took bus rides every morning to the beach and then uh, you know back uh later at the day but in 1989 we showed up in crimea and surprise surprise the bus didn't run because there were fuel shortages in the country you know countrywide problem not just crimea but everywhere fuel was uh rationed for state enterprises only for agricultural you know works and things like that but very limited for public transportation so we walked six kilometers every morning to the beach and then back <laughs> to the village and i was 13 years old and i asked my dad why why oh why we can't take bus and it doesn't run and uh, he answered he looked at me he answered you know that's communists for you son and every step i took i thought uh, i couldn't stand communists <laughs> Definitely 1989 1989 but i still cannot stand the communists so we are in 2023 now and fuel shortages are back they were all but forgotten for i don't know 35 years but the, <laughs> russia is so advanced now so rich so uh everything is going so much according to the plan that at the end of 2023 we're having well, they are having sh 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 fuel shortages. <laughs> They're back with a bang, you know. I take it that the Russian people aren't terribly happy about the shortages, um, but that's what they wanted, you know. They they wanted to be back into the USSR, and they're back into the USSR. And the fuel shortages are just the beginning, okay, and there will come more, more fuel shortages and more shortages of other stuff. Well, that's what the USSR for you. Well, Jonathan, I actually brought popcorn. I knew you were going to ask me this question. My Uzbek-sized no, popcorn, you know, <laughs> this is what they sell for popcorn. <laughs> you, I'm you taking it and I'm just... I, I, I asked I'm the watching, popcorn questions, yeah. I'm watching the development of the show, you know. Yes. Well, <laughs> it, gonna, it reminds me. I mean, put, communism, put the other right here. communism. Pop, there we go. Popcorn. <laughs> we'll open that when I hit the other, you know, the other questions right on the uh, on the nose. But the idea of communism is that everything belongs to everybody. And there was one incident that really stuck in my mind. I'm in a village waiting for the bus to arrive. And the bus is five minutes late. And I ask one of the locals there, well, is, why is the bus late today? They go, oh, the bus is late every single day. Which didn't make sense to me. You can probably guess what's coming. The bus comes into the village. It reverses into a dvor, into a courtyard of a dacha, and they siphon the fuel out every single day. Five minutes, they get, you know, quite a few liters out to fill the tractors, and then it comes to the stop and off it goes. I mean, we're going to start seeing more of that stuff. I think it went away, and, and now that sort of stuff is probably going to be back. You know, I can't believe it's back. I can't believe, Jonathan, that was like a nightmare it was different country different life we we you know everything changed in 91 when the ussr was changed into russia and then russia was born and i can't believe it's back it's like uh having a bad nightmare okay but anyway um for the impact was... of the economy um i don't even know where to start it's it's not good it's not good having shortages um my take is the government will be stepping in to uh, start controlling the industry more and more the fuel market really and it will not turn out well it's never good when the government um, tries to regulate any market in any country but you know when russian government steps in and tries to regulate that's that's a disaster you know it's It'll be increasingly disbalancing, uh, turning into chaos. Okay, but they, they have started, they actually have started, um, um, they've started trying to balance, to 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 bring the, the fuel back to the markets, okay? There are two problems in Russia. Well, now, why, why there are shortages? Russia is so rich in oil and it has processing plants. Um, so it makes diesel fuel and it makes gas. 
But fuel inflation is the key key point here. It started uh, happening quite some time ago uh, in the summer when ruble started developing. Um, usually mirrors the the price of fuel usually mirrors ruble to dollar ratio exchange exchange rate. And this time it was no exception. The wholesale prices started hitting record high. Uh, starting in July after Prigozhin's mutiny, okay, because instability drove uh, devaluation of ruble. And I mentioned that in my crazy uh, Friday news updates, which I do every Friday quite a few times, uh, that um, I mentioned that St. Petersburg fuel exchange were trading, wholesale prices were higher and higher, and I think they were hitting record high for 15 consecutive days okay that hadn't happened before and uh, that's when we start seeing changes at the gas pumps it takes some time a few weeks you know four to six weeks and that's been six weeks and now you know as a result uh first of all the prices at the local russian gas stations went up and then fuel shortages there are two reasons for that high price and fuel shortages actually uh, first problem is fuel is one of those things that's a foundation of cost of everything. Everything. The fuel price goes up, cost of all products and services also go up. And uh, that's what started happening in Russia. Much higher prices, they drive inflation up and well, that's a vicious circle. The consumers will pay though. Okay, so that's not such a huge problem for businesses except for they cannot sell as much at higher price. But it's not pleasant as higher prices at the gas stations. They create unrest among, you know, uh, the, the drivers, motorists, okay? And that's what Russian government hates to see. It hates to see people getting upset because, you know, there's also step, like first step in getting upset. First, they get upset about gas prices. Now they, uh, then the second step, they start asking questions. Wait a second. Why? Why I'm paying so much? You know, as everything is going according to the plan. Wait a second. What kind of plan? And you know, it develops. So, um, second much bigger problem is that <clears throat> the shortages much much more profitable for oil companies that uh, make gas, process oil, uh, refine oil, and make gas and diesel much more profitable to sell abroad because. Prices are much higher. You see, Russian oil companies are not were not allowed to sell. Uh, they basically were compensated. The government wanted to keep prices low for the consumers. It it compensated um, high high prices. Basically, it picked up a part of the bill for every gas pump. Okay, it, this state program was called uh, Fuel Dampfer Program. Okay, and the oil companies were lowering prices, but the Russian government was paying them. Um, so it makes sense, right? You understand. Um, and the Russian government's running out of money, so it stopped doing it. it it's, that's it. No more money to spend. Because basically this Denver program is burning money, okay? So uh, they're not compensating oil companies, and therefore oil companies raising prices. And Russian government says, well, you can't do that because people are going to get upset. And the companies say, well, we'll not sell fuel at lower prices. We'll rather take it outside Russia and sell it there. Okay. Therefore, the shortages of fuel started appearing in the Russian market. And of course, that's 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 huge blow for the industries, for agriculture, for everything else. So there are two problems, and the Russian company, uh, Russian government, steps in and says, "Well, you know what? We're going to regulate the market. We ban all the exports outside Russia. So now you can only sell inside Russia. That's it. That's how Russian government takes care of uh, crises. <laughs> and once you start tinkering with that machine, once you move away from the free market in the crucial energy industry." Surely that's a slippery slope to having to take control of the entire economy, move to a kind of, you know, war, communism, requisition, requisitioning 
type of policy. And with that comes a tightening of tyranny and repression, uh, as history shows us. Absolutely. You're absolutely spot on. Um, I think the next step for oil companies will be shutting down the refineries, saying, hey, there are problems. We are out of certain technologies, spare parts, services, and or we're doing regular maintenance, you know, scheduled maintenance. Um, therefore, they won't be able, they, they won't be selling at the lower prices. And then the government will step in and say, oh, you're doing that in time of war. Then, you know, in the, we're going to prosecute you. We're not going to warn you anymore. And then we'll start prosecuting. That's, that's, that's going to be, um, you know, a vicious circle. And you're absolutely right. Every time the government steps in, tries to regulate, not good. Russian government steps in, that's not good on steroids. And there are also, dare I say it, some greedy mouths to feed. We see um, some of the businesses that have been exited from the market, Western businesses that have been sort of rebranded often as kind of Me Too type brands, very similar branding. Some of these, like the Danone plant uh, and facilities, have been given, I believe, to a Chechen warlord. So again, you've got a class of people and uh, say an avaricious parasitic class of people who are you know very well used to using violence to maintain their lifestyles they're going to run out of assets to keep these guys happy at some point surely um absolutely and it's happened before russia is not the first country for that to happen it's happened before throughout the history of humankind um what they're doing right now is basically destroying finishing destroying russian russian economy not just in the moment but in for, in the future for generations to come because look what has happened to western businesses some were able to exit russia um some time ago uh some it took them some longer time some have not been allowed to leave russia for example raiffeisen bank and i think that um the top managers of uh, the bank are being blackmailed or they're probably, um, you know, they're made offers they cannot refuse and things like that. So, and then there are some situations when the company just leave everything behind and, and, and just get away for look at Reno. They built a very modern plan in the middle of Moscow and uh, it's worth three and a half billion euro and they sold it for one euro to moscow government okay but uh what's even worse when the companies are stolen like denon and like uh baltica stolen from carlsberg is actually people get in and replace the general director and say we are the power of the authority here we're the new owners <laughs> i mean this is crazy do you think that any investor would want to step on russian soil in the next 20 or 30 years or 40 i don't know i don't think so do you think that any company western company large company such as i don't know coca-cola um denon carlsberg big 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 food producers once the war is over hopefully russia will become democratic do you think they would want to come back to russia risks are too high i mean look what has been done to them in this country and they're not gonna forget and for generations this russian economy is just um completely completely destroyed in terms of the russian investment climate has been destroyed and you're also right these people uh now they're stealing from the foreigners who are defenseless and who cannot you know defend themselves but the next thing they will run out of assets to steal and they will start stealing from each other they're like spiders in a jar okay and at the end the biggest spider will remain biggest and strongest and hungriest yeah. spider yeah. and there's going to be yeah. more there's going to be less money rather on the table because the other announcements come through is that a it's going to be a dramatic increase in the headline figure of what the military budget is going to be as a percentage of the total expenditure next year. as a uh, But if you look at that and you strip away the announced figure, 
is it likely that the actual real percentage of GDP going on the military is going to be considerably high? One figure I've seen, which is speculative, I think, suggests it could be as high as 30% of GDP being channeled towards the war economy. I don't think it's a um, speculative figure. Um, it's Don't forget that what they call the war economy, what they call the defense is not just the army and uh, you know the the military expenses the new hardware and so forth it's also the repression machine inside russia you know the kgb and the police and so forth that's they considered part of the military spending as well so considering there are so many people are employed by the government as a vertical of power you know, those agencies who can use violence against regular citizens. I think that uh, 29% is about right. And it's incredibly high. It's not as high, I believe, as the Soviet levels. Um, but then the Soviet economy itself was technically you know, larger and, and, and more powerful than the current one. Uh, obviously, the Warsaw Pact being part of a larger integrated uh, economic system. We're also hearing not just rumours, but uh, they're clearly legislative terms and in technological terms, they've been preparing the ground for another massive wave of mobilisation if it's needed. And this time, they're also talking about thinning out key workers in factories and forcing the others to go on to extended shifts. This surely is going to uh, not go down well if it's enforced in the large urban centres. Don't forget uh, about the extension of working age. I've been asked many times, do you think they will uh, raise the ceiling for retirees, you know, uh, so they can work longer at the factories? They probably will not do that, but what they're discussing right now is lowering the floor, the lower in the age when the kids can start working at the factories. Now it's 16, they want to make it 14. Okay. And you're absolutely right. There have been um there have been rumors, many rumors about you know extended shifts and basically they they are building up the war economy. They started off slowly this January and February, but they're getting the taste of it. Okay. Uh, look how uh, this budget for 24, you know, look how much money they're going to spend on military expenses. Military industrial complex is definitely developing. If not for military industrial complex, Russian economy would be in ruins right now. Okay. That's the only thing that is um, somehow keeping it afloat. And um, they need more people. People are leaving Russia. They're still leaving Russia, you know, uh, and who's going to work at the factories? Who's going to go and get, who are they going to mobilize to go and fight in Ukraine? So uh, they definitely making harsher, tougher conditions. And turning to the war, we know it's not going particularly well, but there has been a hugely... Um, physically significant, strategically significant, but also highly uh, symbolically significant impact. And that was the strike against the Black Sea Fleet headquarters. And then you had this extraordinary spectacle of an admiral who was apparently both alive and dead being paraded on the TV. And then footage, which it's rumoured was taken several days prior being aired as if it was current footage, extraordinary clownish situation but that symbolism of the black sea fleet uh, headquarters being hit by a british french missile um it's just extraordinarily resonant isn't it but what kind of psychological impact is that going to have on russians and uh, those who remain in crimea you are so right by calling this clownish situation it's not just this particular situation it's everything in russia has turned into clownish i call it the crazy madhouse okay and um, this 
Sevastopol strike is the same thing. Um, the strike was big, and the pictures started surfacing right after people. It was in the middle of a city, in the middle of a day, right? So a lot of people were filming. And then all the Z channels and the Russian official propaganda started. First thing, what they did, they started warning people, oh, don't you ever take pictures or videos and post them? Because that's a criminal offense. You're going to get locked up. And uh, there was a first case of one lady who took pictures and posted it somewhere. Uh, she's being charged with breaking the law. Okay. So um, the, we can look at the Sevastopol strike at two angles. First angle is Russian government. Definitely big psychological impact on Russian government. Uh, it feels less secure. It feels that Ukrainian rockets can reach longer now. Uh, the rumors have it that part of the Black Sea fleet has been transferred away from Sevastopol into Novorossiysk. Um, so I think, judging by the small signs, that, you know, they got the message. But another angle is Russian people. Not much of an impact there, at least visible impact, you know, in of course, it you know, a situation was downplayed by the propaganda greatly. But still, if you hear that major news, and there was news about the strike on all Russian news channels, right? If you hear something like that, you start asking questions, yourself questions, and then start asking yourself questions, and then you start asking everyone else. And Russian people, they don't. They seem that they're in some kind of lethargic sleep and I just don't think critically any longer. Um, I think that the situation shows very well that has been normalization of war and the situation going on in Russia. And of the admiral, that's part of the normalization. They just give some news here and there and this. No one knows whether he's alive, he's dead. They show perhaps older footage, but then they don't they don't say anything about it. And then after a couple of weeks, people simply forget about the event, forget about his existence. And that's it. They act as if nothing happened. Like Survikin and Same thing. Girkin, Same thing. many others there. Yeah. Girkin, oh my gosh, look, he just doesn't exist anymore. No one talks about Girkin. Uh, well, how about the mutiny? <laughs> there was a huge mutiny in Russia, okay? Putin came out, addressed the nation. He, uh, Prigozhin made him look so small, so weak. Uh, Putin's hands were shaking, and he was addressing everyone who oh, please help unite behind me and crush uh, those who were announced the mutiny. Uh, you, it, it happened. Jonathan, it happened. We witnessed it. It okay. was real. We saw it. It was real. That's right. We saw it. You know, we still have footage of everything. I, I, I know people in Rostov who actually went and touched the tanks and took pictures of that tank that was stuck in the circus building and everything. So those pilots who were shut down, they're dead. Okay. It's real. <laughs> but in Russia, they act if as if nothing happened, as if there was no mutiny, as if they're just erasing everything from media and they hope that uh, people will forget. And you know what? They probably will forget. I mean, that uh, mirrors the title of, uh, you know, rather a well-known book. It was a long time ago and it never happened anyway, which is by uh, someone who's been appeared on this channel, David Satter one of the first journalists to, well, one of the most recent journalists to have been chucked out of uh, of, of, of Russia. Um, that's already a couple of decades ago, but it, it, it's the same thing. It's like, Perfect. we can make it Perfect disappear. Name. Yes. Perfect name. Um, and by extension, there are other cascades, other domino effects happening. One of those, of course, is weakening imperial power within Russia's sphere. And we've seen these extraordinary scenes of the Nagorno-Karabakh 
uh, conflict which has been going on for a good two decades or well, longer but it's you know it's been a, a hot war on and off for the last um, two or three decades all it took mm-hmm. was a couple of days all it took was a weakening of russian power and resolve in the region and suddenly bang it's gone are we going to see more and more of these uh, conflicts um that are symptomatic of collapsing imperial and military influence i think so i think so we have been seeing and you are so right you're just um calling the calling it the right name it's the weakening you see the empire cannot be weak once it gets weakened it starts falling apart okay because empire is always based on strength power uh cruelty okay and once it cannot maintain that cruelty that control that power that that's it it's not the empire any longer and this is what exactly what's happening with russia um armenia is a very good example armenia chechnya armenia is good example of what's happening outside of russia with um its allies in chechnya what's happening in russia was actually what will happen in russia very soon armenia is gone out of uh, russian sphere and it's a sign to the others uh, there's a signal to the others you know you ally with russia same thing happened to you um and um this is just beginning of huge fallen apart of the sphere i would say and uh, what's happening in chechnya is a very good example too i don't know if you saw the video as a guy who burnt koran he was beaten uh you know and um it seems like uh, this this province of russia has different laws and is just not a part of russian legal system okay and um i think this is a preview of what will happen in the future in many regions of russia um this is what happens when the vertical of power which is very strong by the way putin created he perfected the vertical of power but it's a preview of what will happen when the vertical of power will be falling apart breaking into pieces into parts very strong parts and pieces you know and those pieces will be acting independently and um i think you understand what i mean absolutely do i mean that footage didn't shock me as much as it perhaps ought to have done because the thought went around my head that probably every evening in a cizor in the cells somewhere in a police station some unknown person is being beaten in exactly the same way but it's not filmed and we'll never know their names um I know that was a deeply shocking for many people, deeply shocking, I think, for many Russians who are seeing that footage, but the casual violence that is almost certainly unfolding in every town, village, city um, is, is you know, we may never know about it, but I, I, I can imagine it going on. I think it's plausible. Not so much of the violence. There wasn't much violence there, per se, you know, uh, when I was growing up, I had fights like that. It was 90s were a tough time. You know, we used to fist fight a lot. Everyone did in Russia. But um, what really surprised and shocked me was what happened after. And the reaction the society had to this, about this accident, uh, this event, um, that's the reaction. That's that's what sh- surprised me. <laughs> Didn't shock, but surprised me. That's right. Opinion divided as to whether that was the right thing to do, the wrong thing to do. There was some. I mean, we saw, we saw, we saw a breaking of the law right in front of us. Evidence and the whole nine yards, and then public officials backing it up. Um, Putin basically backing it up, and uh, you know, in the, indirectly, but he sent he's him sending message. You know that that's what really surprised me. Well, we've saved the question to last, which I think is going to trigger you popping that uh, popcorn packet open. This is, of (laughs) course, 
the off the scale. I mean, even for her, this is a new level of crazy. And this is um, this is Margarita Simonian and her extraordinary proposal to detonate a huge thermonuclear um, weapon over Siberia to create uh, an effect, I believe, what she had in mind. I think I've spoken to a physicist. I, I'm in Oxford, so I have access to physicists. They've told me this this wouldn't work. But she's proposed just, you know, detonating the nuclear device over Russia. So it's not attacking NATO, um, but it would cause a chain reaction where Western satellite networks would destroy each other, a little bit like the film Gravity. Um, this, interestingly, has caused some dissent uh, amongst lawmakers and Zed patriots. This is a step too far, even for them, which I, I didn't think there was any step too far. But apparently, you know, even for them, this is fairly crazy stuff. Um, I'm not going to open my popcorn for that. <laughs> um, some things, well, most, if not all things, all the news coming out of Russia are crazy, but some of them are so crazy that they cannot be considered crazy. That's just a different definition of crazy, you know? And I think what Simonian said was uh, out of that category. I, I don't know what to say, really. I've seen as much as you have, uh, all of you have. Um, there are videos of her saying that. I mean, again, we're coming back to that, uh, um, trying to erase from memories. Jonathan, it happened, and it happened day before yesterday. It happened. We all saw it. We have videos to back it up. And basically what happened next day is the reaction in the society was very negative and very strong. And there were a lot of people in Siberia actually standing up and saying, wait a second, you wanted to, you want to, you know, explode this, this bomb over us in Russia, inside Russia. And then uh, even Peskov came out and said, well, we have nothing to do with um, Simonyan. She's not an official you know, her, her opinion is her personal opinion. Even her he backed up, you know, from from that. It's so crazy. But what followed was also crazy. Um, one of the deputies of uh, a representative um, of Moscow State Duma, a Moscow City Duma a parliament, actually went to a police and uh, filed a report asking police, demanding police to uh, check Simonian's message for extremism because it's just way, way too far, you know. And she got upset the following day very much because uh, some, you know, some guy, he doesn't, she doesn't even know, he did that. So she went to the police and she demanded to investigate him you know, um, for for um, asking a demanding police to investigate her. So this is just, this is a mad circus, okay? Um, I don't know whether substance is involved or that's just how she thinks. I, I don't know how to comment that. I'm sorry. No, it's uh, it's it's just too too crazy but it's symptomatic i mean the interesting part is the bit you highlighted which is people then turning on each other and back to the spiders in the jar you know running out of uh things to consume running out of money running out of things that fuel their lifestyles competing for the sort of attention and scarce resources we're probably going to see quite a lot more of that you know, one of the signs, first early signs of the system collapsing big time is when people inside the system, inside the vertical of power will be going against each other. And um, in propaganda, you know, propaganda is a fairly small world. We There are just a few people, there are few faces. Once they will start um, turning against each other, they will. They will be doing that. That's going to be a clear sign that the system is so feverish, it's it's shaking and it's breaking apart. Okay, you watch for this science. 
because it's a sure sign that the things are so not well that they end this year. And this will happen in the big cities, won't it? This will be in Moscow, maybe St. Petersburg. It's not going to happen in the countryside or provincial towns. We we need to look at the the uh, political fervor uh, in the in the big city. I assume Moscow is going to be where things are most visible if and when they do fall apart. Well, or is that I maybe really, that's wrong? I, I don't know. I I I I meant I meant when people inside propaganda will start turning against one another. You know. Simonian against Solovyov and blaming each other and things like that. So, uh, and then people inside KGB will be doing that. People inside the system, okay, and of course that will uh, send aftershocks into the Russian society. And then, but then it'll 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 originate. It'll start happening inside the system. That's what I believe. But then once it starts happening, it'll definitely be heard in. The big cities in, in in the small villages. Let's then save the popcorn for that. I think the idea of the FSB wiping each other out is is the uh, <laughs> is the authentic popcorn moment. Um, and as long as they limit it to themselves and don't uh, don't involve ordinary civilians in their in their struggles, um, I think that's probably. Yeah, I mean that's a lot to digest. I think we've got through a lot of stuff uh, as always. It's not necessarily comfortable topics. It's difficult. It's, it's clownish. It, it, it raises some humor, but it's also deeply depressing in, in, in many ways as well. It's incredibly depressing and tough. Yeah, it is. And we don't want to gloss over that. You know, sometimes we try to mock things because I think that's one way of coping with them. But it, it's a deeply distressing situation for so many people. Uh, including in in Ukraine, obviously, um, and I think the way you tackle these issues uh, without, uh, as you say, propaganda, without BS, it's incredibly refreshing. And uh, we're so glad that you can share your time and uh, and and insights on this. And thank you so much again, Constantine. Jonathan, thank you for having me here. Pleasure as always. Thank you. <laughs>